So that's going to change the whole narrative behind how sophisticated the Maya were. Again, the issue that no one knows about is that there was an early pre-Maya. And I call them pre-Maya because they may not, uh, you know, Maya is the name given to them by uh, archaeologists, but they may have gone by a different name. These guys are the real brains behind everything that came after. The Maya had uh, over 50,000 active pyramids actually functioning. From Guatemala to northern Mexico, there's uh, 5,000 that are still active. Designed with harmonics and earth energies and stuff that we just don't understand that's in our atmosphere. There's, there's uh, energetics that are at play, that interact with us physically, that bounce off the buildings, that, you know, there's so much we don't know. There's so many, so much lost technology that is only found as new, new devices are made. And I keep saying this on my show that there's going to be an MIT graduate that invents a scanning device that can scan these pyramids, can scan these obelisks, and all of a sudden there will be readings of mathematical formulas uh, and other data that are imbued. So when we hear the mythology of speaking to, a, to an obelisk or the oracles of the building or whatever, there's some truth to that, the oracle. Hey, Fire Tribe, how are you doing? Boy, I'm so sorry we left you hanging last week. That's only because this episode that we're putting out today is incredible. It's amazing. It's special. And it encapsulates so much of the topics we've been getting into this past couple months with the pyramid energy of ancient Egypt. Cliff Dunning is, well, he's well, well, well researched. He's been in the podcast game for quite some time. If you guys haven't checked out his show, Earth Ancients, I do recommend that you do. He does tours in Egypt and he does tours down in South America and in Mexico. He knows a lot. He's talked to a lot of great guests. It was actually quite an honor for Dan and I to have this conversation with Cliff. We'd been looking forward to it for quite some time. And it's also special because Dan and I are actually in a San Francisco hotel room together doing our first interview together in person instead of doing it on the computer over the internet. So... It's a great energy. It's a classic, automatic classic, RFTA. And there's a lot of juice in here, everybody. <laughs> there's a lot of juice. So strap in, get ready. We don't have any RFTA news today. We're just going to get straight to the meat, straight to the bones. And before we do that, well, of course, we got some good old house cleaning. 
Are you on the Telegram group chat? You're not? Oh, wait, you are. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I love you. Oh, you're not. We'll do that. Go over to Telegram. Join the group chat and see what is going on. During this crazy time that we're experiencing, celestially speaking, with all these planets in retrograde and all these rotational movements happening energetically, it's a great time to band together to experience everything all at once with people that are like-minded about the same interests and topics that you are. And Telegram's how we do that. I just shared a book on there that's a PDF version book that I can just send. You can just upload PDFs, a thousand page PDF. You can upload it. You can upload a 20 minute audio clip. You can upload so much great stuff. And it's a great platform. Dan and I are both on there and we love to hear from you guys. If you want to support Dan and I, well, we have a Patreon where you can do that for three bucks a month where we put out bonus content and we have, oh goodness, I don't know, 40 plus hours at least on the Patreon. So for $3, you can go get all of that access, go and download them all, you know, and, uh, and get to going. We're all about the Gnosis here. We're all about community. I really appreciate you guys. So make sure to share this episode with anybody that you think would find this interesting. This is all about the pyramids. We're going all over the world, connecting dots, pulling threads. And one more thing before we get into the interview. If you've ever been interested in clairvoyance work, past life readings, energy healing, energy readings, some of the depth of understanding more about our energetic psyches and what is really going on beneath the surface. I want to direct you to a great friend of ours who I've been going to and getting this work done for years now. Her name is Sabaya Sogard. At Vision Switch is her company name. And she's giving any of the Fire Tribe listeners that are interested in her services a great discount. If you go to her website and tell her that you are a part of the podcast community, then you will get a discount on any of these workings. Now, some people say, hey, I don't need... A past life reading. I don't believe in none of that mumbo jumbo. I was right there with you. I was in that boat. I was that guy. But I've had these workings done for years now. And I can tell you there is something to the energetic realm and world. And once you have somebody who has been in the clairvoyancy profession really start to deal with your energy and to look at you and do it do your work it's amazing you will have a great experience so go on over and check sabaya silgard at vision and you'll get a great discount and then be sure to let us know how you enjoyed that 
because I enjoy every session I get. She's a great friend and an amazing clairvoyant worker. So, with no further ado, enjoy today's episode with Cliff Dunning. Hello, Fire Tribe. Welcome to Rising from the Ashes. I'm Danny Naki Dan. And I'm the homie Romy. Hello, hello. Hello. Today on the show, we have one of my most favorite podcasters in the world. Yes. Yeah. Cliff motherfucking Donnie. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> I saw that. And I thought, okay, should I be pissed off at the MF next to my name? No. Or is this, is, is this a, is this a sweet kind of a intro? <laughs> you are an inspiration. Okay. You're an inspiration, you know, uh, in our, we're in like a group of podcasts. Like, you know, we consider, we have podcast friends now that we started yeah. this, you yeah. know, we got Juan from the one on one. We got chance from interverse Mark from my family thinks I'm crazy. And, uh, now officially Sam from, you know, all these other ones. And, we kind of do less of the conspiracy oriented stuff like they do. And we do more of like the ancient history stuff. So yeah. we pay a lot. I pay a lot of attention to your show because the guests that you get on there is the stuff that I'm more interested in. I'm more interested in the, the ancient history that we don't know, the hidden history, alternative history, whatever. And so, uh, at, you know, we've been doing theme months and our last few months have been like atlantis ancient america esoteric america norse mythology now we're getting into egypt and sumeria and so cool. yeah we wanted to get you on sooner uh for uh like maya and talk about south america and stuff uh because we talked a lot about ancient americas and colombian america yeah columbus america yeah so we wanted to get you on to talk about Maya and your kind of, uh, you know, research into the Maya because you've been to Mexico a few times and you've been going there and you've, you're supposed to be putting out a book soon about the Maya, correct? The Maya controversy. Yeah, I have been delayed. I, I, I just published uh, a book on cannabis and then I have a two book deal with Simon & Schuster. The other book that's that I stopped is the Black Knight Satellite, and I stopped it because I was researching uh, the Hindu Vedas, uh, the Vedic texts, mm -hmm. and came across some descriptions of the Mahabharata War. Yeah. Now I don't know if you guys know that this is a war for Earth, fit, uh, fought between two factions and. I was like, oh, that's a nice story. But then I actually got a friend who is in India, sent me some transcripts of the actual Mahabharata, which is 5,000 pages. I'm not about to read that. <laughs> who has time to read <laughs> anyhow? And uh, he sent me specific uh, portions that describe these various aircraft that were used, among them the, the Vamana. And one of them was a, was a craft that, is almost a dead on description of the black Knight satellite. So I basically have had to rewrite the introduction and I'm hoping that book comes out next year about spring, Supreme. but I can't prom promise you anything because all the, I didn't hear you. 
Oh, supremely interesting. I, the Vimanas, yeah. the uh, the ancient Vedas yeah. are of huge interest of ours as well. And, you know, when you look at like even the art from ancient Vedic text and that very colorful art, um, you know, you look at the, the aircrafts, as we call them, the Vimanas, and you look at the architecture and you look at just the style and the characters. It's it's almost like sci-fi. It's almost like a futurist it's so, but it's so ancient. It's some of the most ancient texts that we have and very, very, very detailed. Like let's go into yeah. how detailed the Vedic texts are. Like some of the stories are incredible. Yeah. Arjuna. Yeah. Arjuna is a big figure in the text, but the thing is, and I'm all about history and I've been questioning history since I was a kid. And the thing is that the Western uh, culture, the Western science does not really validate Hindu science, astrology, uh, history, uh, or Chinese or, or the, the, Middle, uh, yeah. the Middle East. So this is a huge problem because the history that we get right now is uh, pretty much spoon fed to us and it's heavily edited. Now, one of the things that people don't understand, you were mentioning my interest in the Maya. I've been going down there for over 25 years and I first went down in 1996 with a girlfriend at the invitation of a Mayan, what they call day keeper. And I had invited him up for a conference. I was a conference producer for about 15 years uh, in the Bay area and New York. Uh, the show was called new uh, whole life expo. And I, I put together a, a native American panel discussion with well-known at that time Native Americans and I thought you know what I'd really like to get a, a shaman or an elder from Mayan culture and this guy named Humbats Men popped up because he spoke pretty good English he had written a number of books so I invited him up to do this conference and after the conference he said come down let me show you my world because everything is like weird so he showed me what his world was and told me over a period of many uh, years that the story that is told about the Maya is incorrect. Uh, it's a long shot. And for the most part, and this is what you want to hear, the, you want to hear something really funny. The, anth the anthropologists, the archaeologists who study Mayan history do not talk to the people. There's over 6 million Mayanists or Maya people that live in Mexico and Central America. They have never once spoken to them. It's like, what the hell? So our history is skewed when it comes to Mesoamerican cultures, specifically the Maya, as well as the Chinese, as well as the Indian cultures, because we just refuse to. Yeah, It's really weird. Well, we refuse to actually hear from the people that are still alive that represent these cultures. So and, and anyhow, that's a little tangent. Sorry like, about that. <laughs> we love your tangents, Cliff. We love your tangents. But like, you know, referencing these old codexes that were basically put on by the conquistadors, right? The Westerners that came over and originally founded, um, <clears throat> or not founded, <laughs> that's a terrible word for that. Uh, but, you know, had basically documented all of their, the, their observations and their recordings and their um, their travels, all of the conquistadorian travels, which is super fascinating to me. But also those codexes are all like, uh, it's like, how much can you trust the conquistador codexes, you know? Um, 
I, I'm yeah. They have to be at least you know on the on the European favorable side. I'm sure there's so much to be dissected. That is truth, but you know history's right. The or winners write the history, right? And I think the conquistadorian European Spanish uh, um, travelers, uh, quote unquote, in their opinion, at least won that. And uh, it's it's well. If you want to hear something really. Mind blower. Uh, my, my mentor was a Mayan elder named Carlos Barreros. And by the way, if you want to read a really good, well written book, it's called The Book of Destiny uh, Unlocking the Secrets to the Ancient Mayas and the Prophecy of 2012. That is a killer book, not only for the information, but what he told me many times was the codexes, codices that we have are transcribed. Uh, from technical manuals. So when uh, Diego de Landa, the priest who came with the conquistadors in the 1500s, came and tried to convert the Maya, and when they refused to be uh, converted, he gathered hundreds of codices, hundreds of technical manuals, tons of idols, and burned them just south of Mareda, the capital of Yucatan, in a monstrous bonfire. And these elders were crying. I mean, they had destroyed a history of these people. And not only that, how to operate the observatories, how to measure uh, the seasons and things like that. So they basically destroyed a manual for life. So, but if you get a, the book of destiny, you'll be blown away on multiple levels uh, on information based on uh, uh, history of the people that uh, we just don't know. Yeah, for sure. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show too is kind of uh, uh, diffusionism and, and Atlantis being somewhere in the Atlantic and societies, that society splitting to uh, I guess Africa and South and North America what, are you, what is your opinion on that? The Maya refer to their ancestors as coming to t from two places, Mu oh. and, and at Atlan. Oh, What's so that? Lemuria and at Atlantis, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. one of the big uh, questions that most Mayanists have, and I, on my show, I have every year, I have four major archaeologists, Richard Hansen, Dr. Richard Hansen, who's excavating El Mirador, in Guatemala, uh, our, one of our regulars is Dr. Edwin Bernard, who actually did a hell of a lot of work with uh, uh, Palenque and a number of other ruins in Guatemala. All these guys are, you know, uh, <laughs> digging for straws because they are, uh, the whole Mayanist focus is really weird we're all we're all looking at the classic period right but the biggest pyramids in the world were built prior to the classic period yeah the problem with with the with the information this is what comes up in my book and by the way i i try to dial it down with my bitterness towards archaeological community mm -hmm. uh the big problem is that the first phase of the maya is not well known because it's a whole different sect. We have not dis uh, uh, deciphered their writing. We don't know anything about them except that they built the largest pyramids and the most complex roads in the world. Mm -hmm. 
You guys must know about five years ago, the uh, University of Guatemala did a LIDAR scan of the biosphere of uh, Guatemala, which is the main jungle. And this LIDAR technology unveiled 60,000 yeah. unknown pyramids, ruins, temples. Yes. Which Hansen told me in an interview would take two and a half years to correctly survey. And, and that's that, how big. Is that an understatement? It seems like two and a half years would be like really just maybe even just like wouldn't barely touch this. I'm sorry, 200 years. Oh, okay. I was like, wow, two and a half years. Let's get to work. (laughs) No, thank you for saying that, man. I was was like, wait a minute. Uh, It wasn't uh, correct. No, it it would take 200 plus years because we're not talking about a a building. We're talking about city after city Mm -hmm. after city. So it's a megalopolis in line. Now, let, let me ask you this. Now that we're on the mezzo, I know we're in our yeah, yeah. we're, we're going to be putting this episode out in our in our Egypt month. We'll get into but, Egypt. Though. But the thing is, is I think, you know, they're they're more similar in way and less way or in more ways than they're different. You know, uh, when you really start to dig at the, the real roots of it all. But since we are specifically talking about this continent, I want to ask you your opinion on these um uh, deposits of liquid mercury found under the Pyramid of the Sun or the Quetzalcoatl Pyramid. Because in China, in a burial pyramid in ancient China, is liquid mercury found under that pyramid as well. And so, you know. And Temple of Osiris. Oh, okay. And Osirian and Egypt. So we have all these uh, mercurial deposits underneath the pyramids and the chambers. Um, and, and sometimes running through the walls. That's That's a story also. Um, cause there's all these pathways that connect all these pyramids together. You know, uh, there's a lot of stories as to what the use of the pyramids are uh, or the, the mercury is, but I'm very curious on what your take on the mercury is. So, uh, last year, last October, uh, we were, my tour group and I were invited to, uh, join, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, uh, at the Pyramid of the Serpent at Teotihuacan. And we were allowed to go underneath the tunnel they found. And uh, this is weird because I have a little bit of claustrophobia, right? (laughs) So I just sucked it up and put my mask on that you had to wear a a hard hat to get down in there. It's just, it's one of those things. And when we were there, uh, we got down to the, the base and the walls were covered with cinnabar. And I don't know if you know, cinnabar yeah. is the raw mineral that you melt and t- it turns into a liquid mercury. So we're in this tunnel. And uh, my theory is that the, the pyramids were machines. And I know that, well, I don't know that, but I have t- been told that by my mentor, uh, Barreros and also Humboldt's men, uh, I can tell you another story, uh, if you want to remind me later, of what NASA did with El Castillo, which is the main pyramid at Chichen Itza. Um, but anyhow, so we went down in this yes, shaft. That, please. And so we're walking and walking in the, uh, uh, Gonzalez, or did I say Gonzalez? It's Gomez. Uh, Gomez is taking us to the very end, which is directly underneath the pyramid. And he points down and there are, little pools of, of liquid mercury uh, around the base 
what he had done is they had used a special vacuum and they had vacuumed up what appeared to be uh, calculated at about five gallons of liquid mercury, which is a hell of a lot of, of mercury. Damn. That's and, nuts. Uh, he believed that it was for the ceremonial purposes. It wasn't so much for a function. But one of the very strange things about this shaft that we were in, and uh, it's, it was a fantastic experience, and we'll, no one will ever invite us to do that again, uh, simply because you just don't allow this, this, the, the public to do that. But anyhow, we got under there, and he went on to say that when they were excavating that tunnel, they had a number of odd uh, occurrences. One is that the electro um, electromagnetic field in the tunnel was very, very strong. Mm. Their lights would go out constantly. Their walkie talkies would drain. Their cameras would drain. Uh, anything electric would, would drain. That's number one. The other thing is there was a strange constant perfume smell that was drawn into this, mm. this, uh, this tunnel. Um, and then the liquid mercury. Now, I was told many, many years ago that the uh, combination of certain minerals would cause a form of combustion. And I've always felt, and I've been studying the, the uh, pyramids for years, is that these are some kind of technology that we don't understand. When uh, Gomez excavated the tunnel... He came down through a shaft on the surface. The, the whole story was he found this opening to a shaft and he started excavating it because he didn't want the general public to fall down the shaft. So, but as he was excavating it, it was a perfect cement shaft that dropped into the tunnel. Hmm. And the other thing, and I didn't mention that, I'm mentioning it now, huge volumes of water were passed through this tunnel, hmm. huge volumes hmm. of water. So this, along with the mixed uh, a mix of mercury, uh, the gas, and whatever else was being dropped in there, were some form of combustion because on the ceiling it was charred and burnt, like something was burning in there. It was very, very well, probably a chemical reaction to all these minerals that were well, passed in order down to, in there. To release the liquid um, mercury, you need to you need heat, right? When uh, alchemists would extract cinnabar to extract mercury out of cinnabar you need heat so i'm wondering if they knew that these cinnabar deposits were there and then they were heating them up on purpose to release the mercury to do some sort of alchemical uh, uh experiments or something exactly it's it's some lost science and it, it looks like there's some combustion going on there now where did this energy go did it go up did it go to the side? Because in the tunnel, it's a straight tunnel, and then there's two uh, side tunnels that, uh, that uh, break off from underneath the middle of the pyramid. What's going on there? We don't know. The thing that drove me nuts is that he was telling me that he hadn't had a, uh, a chemist in there. They hadn't had an engineer in there. It's all archaeological study, which means that, you know, it's as far as it goes. <laughs> I would have loved to have a chemical analysis of what the hell is going on in there. You know, we talked to um, uh, Alexander Tokars, and he is a uh, he's an he's an architect from Sw Sweden, I believe, and he uh, he wrote this paper on the uh, Egyptian revival architecture in L.A. 
And I was really into that stuff. I'm really into like all of the Egyptian architecture and strange, like, you know, like the Memphis, Tennessee, right. And then the the Nile river in America and all that stuff. And uh, he actually moved to Mexico and started an archeological dig company. And he's more, he's working only with locals. He's a really cool guy and I'm really excited to see who he turns up. But you know, what's amazing cliff is that, We've talked to many people about pyramids on here, and mm-hmm. I've asked the Mercury question to quite a few different people and who, you know, haven't been able to give any more depth of an answer. And you uh, just gave probably the most mind-blowing in-depth <laughs> <laughs> thing about that because it's so fascinating, you know, uh, that whole... The- I'll have to tell you, I, I, yeah. The thing that is interesting is if you... Study ancient cultures, Mercury comes up in a lot of these places, which means to me that there was probably a lost science in physics that is not known to us because there's no literature left. But in India, there's a lot of uh, Mercury in temples, in uh, Chinese pyramidal structures that we've excavated or what they've excavated. There's Mercury pools all over Central America. And Mexico, the tombs that are excavated and the pyramidal structures, a lot of them have cinnabar. Now, the Lord Pakal in Palenque, his whole crypt was bathed in cinnabar. Hmm. And he, his body was covered in it. So, to us today, I think it's fairly toxic, but maybe there was a way to denature it. So it isn't so toxic, but it's just fascinating. And and Bacall's the one with the supposedly in the, in the rocket ship on the sarcophagus, right? Yeah. He, they, uh, well, this is Van Van Donegan. That was his theory. Uh, But LIDAR has really opened our eyes to the possibilities. And I believe that the early Maya had access to self-propelled technology. And I have a whole section of my book. Oh, If you guys ever been to Mexico City, if you've ever been to the Anthropological Museum, there is are more figures holding technology, writing technology than any other place in the world. And what makes going to ancient world museums a blast is that there's no editing of the figures. In America, you would never see a little figure holding what looks like a piece of machinery, massive helmets. In my own collection of artifacts, I have guys wearing space suits. In fact, one of the suits is so accurate. I had an astronaut, uh, Ken Johnson, who was part of the Apollo uh, mission, analyze the suit based on a whole bunch of photographs. And he says, this looks like one of our Apollo suits, dead on. (laughs) So I was like... Jesus Christ, you know, what the, the hell is this song? The, uh, the Sumerians get all the uh, ancient astronaut love, you know, and the, the yeah. astronaut theory stems from the Anunnaki and the uh, Sumerians. But man, it's, you know, it really does seem to, oh, this is uh, interesting. <laughs> Etymologically speaking, like, you know, talking about the Aztecs or the Toltecs and this whole like text, like TEC uh, technology is stemmed off of that. And it's almost like, you know, we're, we're paying a little bit of homage to our ancient ancestors that have had access to this, this, uh, heightened technology when we 
use the word technology to the Aztecs and uh, and the and the Toltecs and that that culture in that region. And um, you know, it's funny too because there's you know Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent. Um, sometimes it's cross correlated to the god Hermes, who is also associated Mercury. with Mercury. Yeah, so <laughs> that's an interesting crossover between cultures. Uh, and yeah, and I'm wondering, uh, first of all, I want to ask you, how was your reaction to being in this claustrophobic s tunnel with liquid, liquid mercury being around and having the fumes? Did, did you have a reaction at all? Uh, I had to suck it up because uh, I, I don't know. Have you guys been to Egypt yet? Have you been Not to yet. any of the That's temples 2023, there? 2023, hopefully. Okay. You guys should do our tour in 2023. We're, we, we can't, we, we can't we miss the price. I just, we just. Hulacan. When is it? Well, you haven't scheduled that, I don't think. Taylor. That's, uh, we're, well, we, we're working with uh, Ed Bernard, Dr. Bernard, to do our uh, Mexico tour in the fall of next year. In yeah. the fall. Okay. Uh, but if you, can, if you can swing it, you should do oh. Egypt because we do the red py uh, pyramid that no one gets to see. We do the bent oh. pyramid and we get to go into the, the core. So we go down this uh, maintenance shaft into the interior. And when you're in there, there's such a powerful vibe. It's like, you can't believe it. It's like uh, wow. you're plugged into a battery. So that thing is sitting on a ley line. Yeah. I, I was going to say one, one thing too, with the mercury, like when you're speaking of battery, right? What you have to have the mercurial waters and some old alchemical texts, you know, philosophical text yeah. if you will the term mercurial waters comes up a lot and um when you have a battery solution you need to have um a electrolytic solution and you know mm -hmm. if these are powerful machines well underneath would be where you would have the chambers of mercurial water running through right you would have a positive terminal a negative terminal somewhere um and then you would have the chambers of uh uh, of the juice in order to keep the charge going because apparently electricity cannot move through just pure water the water needs to be charged uh with some sort of electrolytic solution and it's it's just fascinating i we want to go on your tours honestly we want to do mexico with you and egypt and uh and we probably will uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's super cool that you do that and uh we, we're just really great Grateful to talk to you, man. Yeah. This, you're m blowing minds already 20 minutes in. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about some of the pyramids that are in, uh, like, Yucatan and uh, in uh, Central America, because I've heard that some of them are some of the biggest pyramids in the world, but they don't really get talked about a lot. Can you talk about the different types of pyramids in uh, in Central America? And uh, Sure. Um, so the biggest... Other than Teotihuacan, which is not attributed to the Maya, the biggest pyramids are in uh, Guatemala at a site uh, that Dr. Richard Hansen has been excavating called, it's called El Miador. And it, they started excavating them about 20 years ago, a little, little bit less. And at the time, they attributed them to the classic Maya, but as they began digging down, they discovered some of the most sophisticated hydraulic systems in the world. And these are uh, underground 
wells that collected water and then distributed them to uh, outlining villages or uh, you know small cities uh passed them through where they were pushed in and uh aided by weight and distribution and they had like waterfalls in the central part of the city uh they had uh, running water. They had what looks like bathrooms, very, very sophisticated forms of uh, distribution of, of uh, water. And again, as Hansen began excavating the, these uh, large pyramids, he was blown away at the sheer size. And we don't talk about this at all. No one talks about it because it's so new. The sheer size of the stones that make up these pyramids, some of them weigh several tons. A few of them are like in the 20 ton range, wow. which no one really thinks of the Maya as, as wow. a great uh, stonework. We do. Yeah. Uh, That's like Baalbek size. So, <laughs> well, no, Baalbek is in the 800 ton. Oh, shit. Oh, wow. That, that's, those are mega, mega tons. When and if you get to Egypt, you'll see true megalithic temples, and they're flat out cut by granite. They're granite from the floor all the way to the top. They're resonators, too. You go walk in those things, you're like, Jesus. Okay. But anyhow, in, in Mexico, uh, El Miador appears to be the, one of the largest complexes in the world, uh, in the Americas. Uh, and without a doubt, this new discovery that was made a few years ago, uh, uh, just north of uh, El Miador in this uh, biosphere, they're going to uncover, and they've already confirmed that there's a couple of pyramids complexes that are bigger than El Miador. So that's going to change the whole narrative behind how sophisticated the Maya were. Again, the issue that no one knows about is that there was an early pre-Maya. And I call them pre-Maya because they may not, uh, you know, Maya is the name given to them by... Uh, archaeologists, but they may have gone by a different name. These guys are the real brains behind everything that came after. And what they, what the uh, current narrative is, is that they came around, you know, five thousand plus years ago as as uh, hunters and gatherers. Well, that's a bunch of that's not a true statement. What really probably happened is that they were around tens of thousands of years early. If you follow the work of Mario uh, Buildrep, he's a, uh, a scientist and a mathematician who has now recalculated many of the old pyramids and sacred sites and temples around the world. He claims, and this is brand new information, he claims the Maya, uh, these early Maya originated 270,000 years ago. Oh. And I'll say that again. 270,000 years ago. And it's, it's, it's amazing because I've, I've been going down there for so many years and I just knew intuitively that the dates were way, way off. Unfortunately, the scientific community today uses a, what they consider a time-tested uh, aging uh, science known as carbon-14 dating. The only problem with that is that carbon-14 is only good up to 50,000 years, and then it's just no good at all, right? 
when you go down to the Yucatan Peninsula and you go to some of the outlying cities on the golf course, it's known as the Puk uh, Trail, uh, you go to Ushmal and Labna and Sail and, and the other cities, half of those cities are buried. You only see bits and pieces of them. Well, there are huge volumes of water that we now know covered the Yucatan Peninsula for many thousands of years. And about two years ago, a geological survey done by the Mexican community discovered that tsunamis were so huge, you know, five or 6,000 years ago, they literally came inland, you know, all the way into the middle of 50 uh, or to 100 miles. Can you imagine the height of a tsunami oh. that would break landfill and pass over and the other thing is, the uh, buildings not only were underwater, they were collapsed. And when I say that, if you look at the early excavations of Chichen Itza, Ushmal, uh, Sayil, Koba, uh, all the peninsula, they all look like they are compressed. Something very heavy in this water is, is, is the answer crush these buildings. So what does that say? Well, is that the great flood of 9,500 years ago? We don't Younger know. Dryas. Yeah. Younger Dryas. I'm thinking it was. Meteor impact. Yep. I'm thinking it was. You won't get most minus to even go there because they're, 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 they're very comfortable with the 3,000 year old people. They're, you know, anything <laughs> older than 3,000 year old, they'll walk out the wind, walk out the door on you. So, uh, what does El Mirador mean in uh, English? Uh, the big one. The, the big the, one. The big, the big, the big hill. Oh, uh, the big hill is that, and the, is that where the biggest pyramid is? Yeah, in Guatemala. That's where Richard Hansen is excavating. Okay. And if you if you do a search for El Mirador, look at the very first excavations they found. Say that again. You freeze. I said, find, find the uh, some illustrations of El Mirador when they first found it, and uh, look at what they look at the um, the actual civic area that they started excavating. You'll see all these waterworks that are just mind blowing, mm -hmm. beautiful sculptures. This was named later. It was named by uh, archaeologists later. They don't know their original yeah. of the city. Okay. Uh, they're, they're, I mean, they haven't excavated uh, enough of the this older civilization, this pre-Maya, uh, pre to understand um, exactly, you know, their language or what they were up to, what their purpose was, you know. But they were around for thousands and thousands of years. What's your what's your feelings and opinions on um, uh, ge geological takes of the tectonic plates and the mainstream narrative of how they've uh, they've been moved and 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 their uh, and their influence on how we 
we use archaeology now because I went to, I took a, some small ge geology courses in college and super fascinated me when I started digging into the tectonic plates. And it starts to show you if, if, if they work the way they say that they work, then, you know, massive shifts and changes can happen uh, almost immediately. Yeah, I, I studied uh, Charles Hapgood uh, tectonic plates, the, the continental shifts. And at first, I thought it was pretty far-fetched for a whole continent to be to move. But now that I've read Mario Bildrep's um, theory and his uh, his paper orientation of the pyramids, uh, and it's and their um, I think the second part is their correlation with the Ice Age. Um, it seems very very feasible mathematically that uh this is a huge possibility now what he does he takes like well-known ruins like Baalbek, the great pyramid of giza the Teotihuacan, and he uh measures their alignment most of these big buildings are are uh, uh, designed on the cardinal points north south east west and if you take the front of the of the pyramid and you draw a straight line it's supposed to connect with the north pole that's just what how they built all their buildings energetically most likely mm -hmm. what he found is that yeah feng shui is another way to look at it it's all about energetics and this is what's so amazing because we're so linear today our science is so linear there's a whole volume of ancient history that is ignored because it's energetics right they can't see it they can't measure it they don't want to think about it even though they're being impressed by this energy, they're going, well, why, why am I feeling lightheaded? Or, why? Hey, I want to sleep. What's going on here? You know, they're not paying attention to any of that. So we're only getting a fragment. So anyhow, what this guy, uh, uh, Mario Billreps discovered is that there is five total uh, North Pole alignments, mm -hmm. which... Uh, account for 400,000 years of earth crustal displacement. So the North Pole has shifted five different times. I didn't believe it before because one of the guys I've had on my show regularly is Dr. Mark Carlotto, who followed up from Hapgood and came up with a same, similar theory. And he had the same kind of alignment. But what Buildrep does, he has a very cool um, demonstration on his website where he shows you these different North Pole uh, movements and what's really mind-blowing is how they align with these ancient sites it's like it's like a map so he goes back and he calculates when the first pole shift happened it's like three hundred thousand years ago oh. and what's a mind blower a lot of these ruins were built during that time period <laughs> So it's like, oh, is it 3,000 years old? Is it 5,000 years old? Is it 9,500, you know, <laughs> years old, Ice Age? No, it's 270,000 years old. We just had Scott. How do you, how, I mean, we oh, Scott, yeah. He's writing on, uh, yeah, and he, uh, he was talking about like a, like a fire ratio of like the world spinning and turning and like pole shifts happening and that so the north pole would be slowly moving down 
and then at its spot now so that would have been like the earth tilt i guess but maybe not all at the same time in intervals yeah, yeah. you know and this is the other thing we don't look at the yugas the hindu yugas which yeah. are a uh calendrical system of twenty six thousand years for a full cycle there's the high the the high wisdom and then it's less wisdom and then right now we're in kali yuga, yuga which is really the worst part to be worst in <laughs> yeah. but we're slowly coming out of it right we're slowly coming out of Kali Yuga. But the thing that is amazing is if you start using these ancient calendars, they actually align up with some of the Ice Age uh, uh, predictions and some of the uh, uh, things like these uh, uh, continental shifts. The, they, they, they all kind of make sense. The Mayans have a, a similar type of thing too, don't they? They have a, num a number of calendars. Yeah, they yeah. have a... Yeah, don't they have a moon calendar that's is kind of like uh kind of like the Kali Yuga though also? It's it's 200 plus years based on uh, a, uh an orbit, the moon's orbit. Yeah. But one of the other things about the Maya that people don't understand is and this, and this goes uh, to, you can see this in their Dresden Codex which is in Spain. A lot of the studies of the near nearby planets are so accurate they only could have been done by somebody in a ship coming close to the to the gravity of the planet and also observing how the planet works and moves and, and uh, passes through our, our cosmos. You can't just stand there. This is what archaeologists want us to believe, uh, archaeoastronomers, uh, uh, is looking nakedly, naked eye in the sky and saying, okay, I can tell what's going on with that planet. How in the hell can you do that? The only way you can do it and the only way it's uh, available is to actually be close to the planet in a, in a craft of some kind. There's a term that NASA uh, propulsion rocket uh, experts have, and I can't think of it right now, but it, it's the study of gravity to a rocket ship. As a, as a rocket ship comes closer, they can tell what's going on with the gravity, how to prepare to land on a planet. And this is apparently what the Maya have. We don't hear about that because it's not well understood. But these codices that we have uh, to our, I think there's four of them now, and some papers are really, really uh, amazingly accurate. Too much so that it's not just naked eye observation. Mathematics helps, and they were brilliant mathematicians. But there's another missing element and, and this has to do with these pre-maya who in, probably inherited a great deal of their knowledge as the earth was changing and this is a great deluge um we we know a great deal from their observatories if you go to chichen itza the observatory there is fixed on certain star uh constellations and also planets but you can't which which constellations and which planets by uh the ones that are closest to our cosmos venus mars saturn you know those and not so much saturn but venus mars the moon the sun um and there's a couple other ones that I can't there, think of what right about now. the tale of two suns in the mesoamerican uh lore is there is there that or is there any um is there any sh switching or shifting of the suns 
in in the tales of the South American stories, like uh, you mean a sh- shifting in terms of something happens and the Earth is moved out of the way, or well, um, there's so like, many tales. I, I, I mean, don't. We talked a little bit with Scott Crichton about this. You know, there's like Egypt. The, the, there's the two Sphinx, right, or like the a tale of the Sphinx shifting and, and facing the sun and facing another way, and then there's other things like the lightning bolt project, where it's you know electric universe theory but it's also stems off of velikovsky's like saturnian cosmology and there are some stories that you know there potentially was a major cosmological change and shift that the sun itself changed and the earth may have been um you know under the the solar rays if you will from from saturn in it being almost like a almost like the spectrum of light itself was different. And so like, like like you have a lizard cage and you put like that, that special light bulb in the lizard cage, you know, like the, and it's something along those lines, but there's, there's many people have talked about it over the years. And so I was wondering your take on it, or if there's any folklore stories of the switching of the suns. I haven't heard anything uh, uh, about that. That's interesting. Um, I do, I'm not familiar with the Mayan story or mythology of, of two sons, um, but I am familiar with the, the changing of the uh, uh, tilted or the axis of the earth oh. uh, tens of thousands of years, uh, actually millions of years ago. Oh. Uh, and it could be related to, uh, and they don't know how, but the, the sun expanding and contracting. Um, one of the things that's interesting about uh, planet Earth is that it continues to expand. And one of the big issues that people are curious about is how did these dinosaurs get so big? Well, there's a number of people that have written, one guy specifically who's written about the expanding Earth. At the time of the dinosaurs, the Earth was much smaller, and the gravity was was uh, less. And so, not only were the dinosaurs huge, that whatever hominins, human beings that were on the planet, were probably good sized too. <laughs> so, uh, expanding Earth theory, dinosaurs—that uh, is do you, do a fascinating topic. The pyramid building cultures were around the time of these large reptiles or dinosaurs or do you think that was maybe in between or after and what's your opinion on the mainstream narrative with the dinosaurs and a, and an asteroid coming to wipe them out well there's proof of the asteroids in the gulf of mexico if you look at the mm-hmm. uh, field scans yeah that was a monster and that apparently and i don't know how they can figure this out is what they call a terminating event so anything on the planet was destroyed you know, this is the this is the issue with the second or not the second, but the uh, younger driest uh, impact is that that asteroid was close to terminating, except that, it, that there were a lot of humans that survived it, uh, and that wiped out the previous culture that had a high level of science and physics that we just don't understand, uh. but we do see it. When we go to Egypt, and now I'm rethinking the whole Mayan culture 
Um, and what the Mesoamericans, the Aztecs and the Toltecs and the others. Uh, what's what's your uh, chronology on Egypt and Mesoamerica? When your opinion, what came first, or uh, what was that chronology? It used to be like Egypt you? and Mexico. Now, because of this new chronology uh, put up by Mario Bildrep, uh, and I'm not totally convinced yet i i'm still working on it I'm, I'm i mean he's just come up with this new group and it's him and f uh i think it's 10 other noted not noted but scientists this is going to change our whole understanding and it's going to take probably decades for anyone to accept it people have to die yeah. off before oh, they yeah. accept it yeah know? uh but now i think the maya may have been the earlier people if it's true that the Maya, the pre-Maya, were their inception date was two hundred and seventy thousand years ago, two hundred and seventy thousand years ago, then we begin to understand why Maya, the term Maya, is so big in the Hindu philosophy and Hindu lore and myth, and Maya plays a part in Egyptian uh, history as well. So yeah, do you think there's any crossover there from from him? I think so. Maya, because Maya is the name of like the the queen of uh, the the Hindu uh, mythology, right? And, the, and the, also the wife of Zeus, right? Classically, right? Yeah, I, I I think the Maya were actual teachers in many ways. Uh, you had Freddie Silva on, and Freddie Freddie's big on the Maya, really big on the Maya, and I yeah. think that. Uh, some of the elders that he's spoken to believe that the Maya were teachers, kind of universal teachers. Now, I have a section in my book, and I mentioned this earlier, that shows the Maya were also technologists. They were very big in, in um, self-propelled uh, craft. We don't know what. But in the last 24 months, archaeologists in central Mexico have found what they call huge platforms and these are perfectly flat, uh, one and a half mile long, what looks like runways. They're not platforms for people. They're, uh, they're equal to what we would use today as a small runway for aircraft. And we haven't found one or two of these. We found like, I think in total, they found 500 temples, pyramids, and runways. And it's like, what the hell is that all about? <laughs> I'm starting to think that um, that this pre-Mayan culture was the Atlanteans, maybe, because, you know, you have all the stories coming from ancient Egypt, the, the stories of Atlantis coming from ancient Egypt. Well, yeah. if Egypt stemmed from the pyramid building culture of ancient Mesoamerica or the ancient pre-Mayans, then they might be telling stories of what the pre-Mayans were. And, and if they, because the old stories of Atlantis, right? You have, it's a high technological society. Yeah. And definitely talk of flying, uh, flying uh, vessels. And then you have, right. uh, let's jump forward, you know, to sometimes in, the, in, in recent history where you have the book New Atlantis by uh, Brother Francis Bacon. And he was basically, you know, talking about going to the Americas, talking about a land in the West that would rise to follow suit of the old Atlantean ways, but they would call it New Atlantis. But maybe it's just reinventing the Atlantean society that was already here in the Americas. 
maybe. Yeah. I, I mean, that's heavy speculation, obviously. No, because when you go down to Yucatan, there is a um, a temple called, uh, it's uh, just north of Chichen Itza, Ekbalam. And it's the only temple with a relief that honors what appears to be uh, uh, high council and priests. One of the figures is a long head. Mm. And we're talking a, a cranial capacity that's equal to probably Paracas or bigger. The, uh, and the other figures all seem, one of the, uh, most of the figures are, they look like they're from India, number one. The, the women are all perfectly fit. You could pick one of these sculptures up and put them in an Indian temple. It would be, you know, identical likeness. But that design of that complex is the same as the uh, temples that are found off the coast of the Caribbeans uh, by scan. And we've had a couple of guys on the show that have done underwater scans that show that, you know, these underwater temples and, and what look like pyramids probably were an outside uh, or a far coast uh, uh, complex that was related to Atlantis, even though you can't say that. <laughs> but when you go to Ekbalam, you, I really suggest you go there. The sculptures are mind-blowing. What do you know of, of the people of Chichen Itza? Because when we were on this walking tour yesterday, uh, Chris had mentioned a tribe from Sweden called the Tinchenitsa. And I was like, well, that's fucking weird. Uh, is there any like any talk of the Chitsunitsa of those people coming from a far off land or coming from somewhere else? Well, like my mentor told, you know, said that they, you know, came from Atlan, the original people, pre-Maya, and Mu, Mu is Lemuria. Uh, the um, Toltec migrated from Mu to Central America and then eventually, and by the way, the, the uh, Toltec were technologists. Mm. If you've ever been to Tula, Tula, look up Tula, T-U-L-A. Those are very, very tall figures. And if you look at the figure uh, in detail, they're holding some kind of gun, which could be a ray gun. They have a, a jet pack on their back. They, oh, and these yeah. guys, these yeah. guys, these guys are something like, uh, what are they? They're like 18 feet tall each, <laughs> solid stone. So, yeah, if you ever get a chance to go to the... Um, anthropological museum in mexico city filled with very cool artifacts like that well the toltec and the maya didn't really like each other very much right well the toltec dominated and basically uh, uh captured the northern yucatan and uh, other mayan cities and made them their own the outer shell and yeah. most of the uh, current sculpture or um architecture at Chichen Itza and these other sites is Toltec. Right. It's their design. So to go back to the great battle in the, the Maharabharata mm -hmm. of, of uh, you know, the two God civilizations, that's kind of like the Lemurians and the Atlanteans, uh, same type of thing going on again. Could be. The Mahabharata war, the war for Earth, is very, very old. It's older than 10,000 years. 
And, and it's not recognized because we don't really follow Indian history or Chinese history. It's not in our, you know, there's no very few books on it. Um, but yeah, if there was a war for Earth, you, you know for sure that the Maya are going to be a part of it. Um, and I have to wonder, if, I, if you study some of these figurines in the museums that are wearing technology, w was it battle-ready technology? Was it for fighting in a war or something like that, there's definitely figures that are fully outfitted with uh, zero atmosphere clothing. Um, I mean, I have a, a couple of figures in my own collection. Like I said, they're wearing full-on spacesuits. So were those guys in a battle? We don't know. Um, hard to say. And it's one of those situations where we don't have any literature, any reference. And because we only partially understand the classic period of the Maya, it's anyone's guess if they were in a war or not. So you're not really a too big of a proponent of uh, ancient astronaut theory. But so do you think like there's just a higher civilization, kind of like what we are now just in the past, and then we're trying, we're just discovering that now? Yeah, they're it's not like necessarily alien, but they had the same technology. They're able to send out satellites and whatnot to maybe that's what the Black Knight satellite was, was to take uh, pictures of, of stars and stuff so that they that way they have a better idea of where they're at in the sky. I can't give away my whole book. <laughs> it'd, be easy, it'd be easy for me just to spill, spill it right now. But I will get you on uh, if you're interested <laughs> after you write the book so we can promote it for you. Well, it's written. It just has to be published. So perfect. Uh, no, it's, it's, I got I'm editing right now. But uh, so I'm on track a little here. Huh? You're, you're on track. Um <laughs> it, it's funny because uh uh when you study the mahabharata a lot of it's what they consider mythology but it's an oral tradition and that's another thing native americans especially in the united states have amazing stories of star people you're talking about extraterrestrials and so at some point i had to bend a little bit you know because here i am my mentor saying yes we've dealt with star people uh, and, uh, also I've had people on the show. I had one woman, um, who went down and chronicled, uh, the interactions between aliens and Maya. And, you know, one of the most recent interviews was, uh, somebody down in, uh, uh I think it was in Honduras who, who basically is still having communications and, and sightings of UFOs. And these UFOs are trans are basically telling them we've been here for thousands of years. So how do we, but how do you gauge that? It's all hearsay. And that's what, that's my problem with, with ancient aliens. Whatever they can explain yeah, on ancient true. aliens, it's, it's like the aliens, the aliens were here to help us. Yeah. The aliens, the aliens, the aliens. And they're, they're completely forgetting. And the only reason I can say this is that I, I've been down and seeing the miracles of the Mayan technology up close and personal. Uh, and also, Egypt, the only, the only reason I can say that they're at the time of these places being created, the level of sophistication is so far beyond us. Uh, and we're talking about unknown science and f physics and technology that all we can do is go, wow. And then when Van Doniken goes, well, this was all created by aliens. It's like, no, dude, come on. <laughs> uh, there were people 
there were civilizations that were highly, highly developed. And remember, if, as Edgar Casey says, Atlantis was in three phases and each phase was five, or excuse me, there was like uh, 10 to 25,000 years. Imagine technology evolving from day one and having a thousand years to grow. Just think, I mean, yeah. think about us, the United States, from 1900 to, and then kind of uh, move forward to 3000. What, what are we going to look like in another thousand years? Yeah. We're going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. We have for you know? Yeah, we could be Borg-like, you know, where we have implants yeah. and, you know, we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyhow, uh, my, my issue with the ancient aliens is not that I uh, don't believe that star people have been here. The natives tell us that they're here. We can talk in another time at all about the whole uh, UFOs being changed to UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, mm. because that's a whole can of worms right there. But uh, when you guys get to Egypt and you see megalithic temples, you'll, you'll probably think and go, how in the hell did they do this? Because we're talking you know, strips of, yeah. of uh, granite that are 50 tons each being lifted 80 feet in the ground uh, to the ceiling, creating a roof, you know, and you think, it's like, do you think that they're creating something different in the pyramids of Egypt compared to like the pyramids in Mexico? Because they physically look different. There's step pyramids in Mexico and then there's, you know, flat sided pyramids in Egypt. Do you think, that, that has anything to do with what they're trying to create alchemically or mechanically, what type of whatever? Do you so have an idea that's what a great, that's might a, have been trying to create? So in the book, The Book of Destiny, written by, uh, he's basically a shaman, Carlos Barraros. He said that at its peak, uh, the Maya had uh, over 50,000 active pyramids actually functioning and before he died he died of uh covid in 2022 wait 2020 yeah uh july of 2020 was devastating um he said that currently from guatemala to northern mexico there's uh 5, that are still active Five thousand pyramids. Okay. What is this so how do, what is that? What do you mean by active? So, what happens with these pyramids? And this has been studied by NASA. I just I, I just did another show, and I mentioned this that NASA ten years ago was at Chichen Itza studying El Castillo, the main pyramid. They basically tented around. They they put up a big uh, uh, fabric wall so no one could see what they were doing. But they were basically scanning the structure to see what was going on. And they discovered a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so Mayan pyramids, the ones that are working have the components that we talked about. They have uh, water channeled either naturally, like El Castillo sits on a cenote. It also has running water under it. It was built over that. So the water is happening. Uh, the interior is filled with granite or crystalline stones of some kind that have quartz crystal in them. That's number two. And they're sitting on top of ley lines, which are earth 
based energy fields. So they, somebody had the understanding of where to find these places and they built the city completely based on that finding. So you got the ley line, uh, it's telluric energy. It comes up, it is captured in the middle of this pyramid. It's amplified with the crystalline rock. It's enhanced also by the water. And there's probably one or two other elements that we don't know about uh, that mixed together create this energy field that passes up and through and into the atmosphere. There's a number of photographs that have been taken of Tiwatiwakan, El Castillo, uh, five major pyramids at Tikal, and I think a couple of other places they've taken photographs just routinely, not to capture anything, and seen energy fields coming out of the top of these things. I think they were either manipulating the atmosphere or causing specific types of resonance for mm. the human physiology. And also, if the power was at a certain frequency, uh, you can start powering craft, self-propelled craft. There's a big theory right now that Tesla's Wardenclyffe Tower is based on Mayan pyramid technology. If you study the Wardenclyffe Tower mm. in New York, Tesla was so far ahead of himself. <laughs> this is why they shut him down. His whole field was to actively pass energy into the atmosphere with these towers so that uh, he could propel aircraft, uh, land craft, and underwater craft without uh, combustion engines. Wow. You know what's funny is you were saying earlier when you go to these um, heavily charged electromagnetic charged places like the the devices will drain in battery and the tech yeah our modern technology will drain in battery but it sounds like if you have a specific type of older technology you'd be able to use it as opposed to it draining almost like we're you know almost yeah like purposefully using the opposite type of technology to interact with the earth's electromagnetic field that's a good point too i mean our paradigm is based on really really powerful and damaging uh you know uh radiation uh, uh what is the g5 radiation is is uh i'm trying to think what kind of the what the uh, energy is but the, the europeans are, are are deadly afraid of g5 technology because it basically fries birds they they get knocked out of the sky animals just freak out microwaves mm. so it's based on microwaves and microwaves are are somewhat dangerous now the bent pyramid in egypt is thought to be a microwave emitter this is what the old ones talk about but it was more for communications than it was for bathing the body in energy so uh it, it may have been a, a type of microwave that is much more uh holistic mm -hmm. rather than damaging and kind of like uh dangerous so yeah. our whole society is based on, uh, and this may be why we don't live very long. The fact that we are bathed in these electromagnetic energies and we're constantly uh, bombarded by uh, router energy from internet, from, uh, I mean, unseen energy in these big cities is 
probably reducing our age by 20 to 50 years. You know, we, we, I, I heard the other day that we're supposed to be uh, healthy until we're about 150, 150 years. Well, anybody who lives in, today into their 90s, let alone 100, they're considered oddballs because <laughs> we're just, you know, we're, we're bombarded by all these very, very uh, deadly uh, vibrational fields. Well, so. Let me ask you this. You're Californian. What do you think about the concept of Lemuria itself, um, you know, having roots in California as an island? Because there's a lot of folklore stories about Mount Shasta um, being some of uh, some of the heartlands. And, you know, here, even the word in San Francisco, you got the San Francisco Giants. Um, you know, you have at this Oracle Park at Oracle Park. You have, you know, these <laughs> even just the pre earthquake um, civil uh, architecture here in San Francisco was massive and beautiful. I love looking at pictures, any pictures I can get my hands on of pre earthquake and fire and pre massive. <laughs> how much destruction has come on in San Francisco alone, you know, yeah. and. Um, and yeah, so what, what's your take on, on the Lemurian culture? Dive, dive back a little. I, I do think California is a beacon. I think that there's an energetics here that is kind of a beacon. And this is why I get very uh, uncomfortable when I see our forests in California burning up because there's those, are, those big sequoias are kind of like the lungs of our planet. When you see 2,000-year-old trees fry, uh, frying, it's like, oh, man, that's not good. So whenever there's a fire, I get uncomfortable. Um, the natives in uh, Marin County uh, had stories of, of their ancestors coming by boat from someplace in the Pacific. Um, the top of Mount Tamapias has a series of stones that are magnetic that apparently if you sit on it, and I, I've only, I've, I sat on them about 20 years ago. Where is this at? Mount Tamapias at the Where very top. It's in Marin County. It's in uh, uh, in San Rafael. Okay. It's the highest peak next to Mount Diablo. Ah. Anyhow, Mount Tamapias uh, is has a lot of very interesting uh, um, electromagnetic or or geomagnetic, I should say, uh, fields around it. Um, there's some rumors that the, the natives, uh, you know, used it for healing and understood the properties there. Um, but California's connection to Lemuria, I, I don't know enough about it, but there is rumor that Mount Shasta had some settlements that were from Mu. Um, we just don't know. I mean, this is one of the things that is really the sweet spot for Michael Cremo, who wrote Forbidden Archaeology. He's got sections in his book of various digs on California where they find uh, in the Catalina Islands uh, people who were 12 to 18 feet tall, um, who were blonde haired, uh, who were massive. And there are uh, artifacts, very uh, sophisticated bowls, very sophisticated um, stoneware that don't appear to be, you know, native. They appear to be from some, someplace else. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I mean, I was uh, comfortable until uh, Mario Bilrep's new uh, philosophy of, of uh, 
Kressel displacement, I was comfortable with moose population migrating to Mexico and northern uh, North America 28,000 years ago. Yeah. That's fairly well known. In fact, if you study Susan Martinez, Dr. Martinez's book yeah. on the ancient races, she talks about the migration. A uh, close friend of mine, the Zuni elder who just passed away, Clifford Mahoudi, there's a long oral tr tradition Hi. of Mu uh, people leaving 28,000 years ago. So that's about as much uh, on California uh, uh, history that I know about. That's, I mean, that's a lot, man. You know, that's more than, than your average Californian will be able to say about the land. You know? <laughs> but there is, there is a heavy magnetic energy here. I mean, look at just all of the mountains. There are heavy quartz. And, you know, obviously the mining history here is very, 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 very rich. And, um, you know, they say where there's gold mines, there's magnetite nearby. Magnetite, the lodestone itself, is the only magnetic mineral that we know that's not man-made, magnetized. And I'm wondering what you know about magnetite mines or magnetite uh, being found in South America is that talked about at all or because it's a it's a super fascinating mineral because there's magnetite clusters in our brain that have baffled scientists for years. They, but this is very, you know, this is very real. It's old. You know, we found that we have magnetite clusters. They're small in our brain. And it, and it makes me think that we need to go and live in, in magnetized areas in order to live to our full human optimization. Um, and something else that's new is that m new magnetite clusters are, are founding to be formed in the brain, but not organic. Like it's an addition to the magnetite we're already born with. So it's like, you know, it could be from just like having heavy metal in your diet and it's, uh, maybe making more magnetite cluster in your brain. It, that's a whole other side rail, but, um, but I am curious if, you know, cause we, we have the, the cinnabar and the liquid mercury, uh, you know, being formed. I'm wondering about the magnetite and if they were able to mine the magnetite and use it, then I feel like our ancient ancestors would. I'll tell you, it's funny. You're talking about that. Uh, I don't know about uh, magnetic rock, but I do know that the technology from Atlantis it seems to be coming back. I had a guest on, uh, Gail Lynn, who's an engineer, used to be with Ford. She was an uh, autom automotive engineer who, who had an epiphany to build a machine, a healing machine for, for human beings. And after several years, she actually found uh, a production company that could build this she calls it the harmonic egg. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was like, well, that sounds weird. And so I actually had a chance to, to go and sit in one. She's in Castro Valley. They, they produced, uh, Gail and her team in Colorado produced 100 of these things. And it's it, based on sacred geometry. So it's not a clean egg shape, smooth. It's angular and geometric so it's based on sacred geometry sound and light frequency and uh motion and she's had people go into this thing and and have massive detox a uh, max ma maximum detox as well as 
all kinds of uh, healing. And she calls it, as well as the, the woman who I met uh, recently, uh, realignment of the cellular level of the body. And so I, I, went, and had a t I went and had a demo, and I'm going to have two more after that. Nice. And I was, I was no good for a day. I mean, it, wow. I, I sat, I sat in a thing for for an hour, but the, it basically leeches the crap out of your system, mm -hmm. and and then deposit it deposits it in your liver and in your kidneys, and so you're you're supposed to drink like um, I had it done on Friday, by the way. <laughs> nice. Oh, this is fresh. <laughs> yeah, that's why I, I was saying that's probably you know good. I'm not sitting with you because I'd probably be laying down and talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard yeah. that episode uh, and I did look that up because you asked her if there's some in California and she said, yeah. And, and you said that there was one nearby you and I looked them up. There's probably like seven or eight in California alone. I think there's two. There's one in Modesto. There's one in Castro Valley are the two, only two. So if there's more than that. Yeah, I looked it, it must, up on the, I looked it cool. up on her website and there were yeah. several different locations all throughout. There was even one in Malibu, go figure. But I mean. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's funny. I, I had a similar experience when we had Mitch, the orgone donor on the show not too long ago, a couple months back. And he sent me some organite and I was like, organite, huh? That stuff, you know? Yeah, uh, William, William Wilhelm Reich. No, Wilhelm Reich is a really interesting character. Um, yeah. But anyways, I got the organite. I got the box, opened it up, and I put all of them in my room. I was sick for for days. I, I, wow. I, I and I'm like, I called him, and I was like, "Is this normal? Like, am I? Is it pulling toxins out of my body?" And you know, it, the the science that Wilhelm Reich was doing with organite is that it aligns cell structures in the atmosphere as well. And so, you know, if it happens within your body, you know, in these different types of technologies that were basically rediscovering this ancient technology, it's fascinating. And we need to do what we can in order to promote this stuff so people can have detoxing and, and, and intuitive downloads of like, you know, I don't know what you believe about the Akashic record or the collective con or the uncollective consciousness. Um, but, you know, I've had some of the most profound ideas that have helped me through my deep research when I just sit there with myself trying to breathe and trying to align with myself. And then this little voice in my head says, Look up magnets. <laughs> no, that's your that's your your higher self talking to you. No, I uh, I was for some reason, and I've been doing this stuff for you know I'm sixty plus guys, so I've been sitting on this chair for. Are you? I've seen a lot of weird stuff. You're incredibly yeah. so rambunctious and going. It's the you thing. See, I was in the egg. I've been in the eggs. So I, <laughs> I dropped twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I, I've been studying this stuff for years, and I've had a lot of people coming to these uh, conferences. You know, they want to talk about their stuff. So I have a sense of what feels right and what doesn't. Uh, uh, this egg, I just cut to the chase and say, well, where can I get a treatment, you know? And so she gave me, uh, Gail Lynn, the inventor, gave me a, uh, a number, and I met Sylvia in Castro Valley and just, just had a treatment. Like I said, I was no good 
Friday. Yesterday, I was still not great. Today, I'm coming off. <laughs> but when she says it real realigns you on a cellular level, I believe it, you know. But is it your brain just screwing with you? Is it just weirdness happening because you're just not feeling great because you've been burnt out? Whatever. Your, your little uh, yada yada brain comes up when you have these experiences. I think she's got something, and that's why I'm going again uh, next Friday and the Friday after that. I have a three-part uh, interview. But I think you're right. I think these, these technologies are coming back to serve, to, to help us, because what we got right now in allopathic medicine is dead. It's the, it's the worst. And when I say that, when you go to your traditional HMO, your doctor, they don't look at you from a holistic, full-body perspective. They look at you as a disease factory. So their analysis is, what drugs can I give this person, deadly? What surgery can I give this person? Or what radiation should I give this person? Mm -hmm. That's their healing perspective. And this is why I tell people, when you go to a doctor, and you'll hear me say this a lot on my show, <laughs> is when you go to your doctor, they are brilliant for analysis to tell you what your problem is. But if you stick around long enough, they're going to give you a suppressive drug. They're going to open you up unnecessarily, or they're going to irradiate you. So you go and you get the analysis. Then you go to a Chinese medical doctor or a naturopath <laughs> and have them work with that diagnosis. If you stay, I mean, my, I'm the oldest of five brothers. My youngest brother was diagnosed with uh, a form of leukemia about 20 years ago. They did a full body irradiation at Stanford University. They, they put him in an experimental program. The guy's growing tumors, benign tumors all over his body now. I mean, it's just like, it's a nightmare. They don't know. I mean, it's, you're, in a, you're a guinea pig. So, yeah. so that's why when, when this technology comes, go ahead. Oh, talking about the harmonic egg and everything and, and some of these pyramids having this energy to it. I remember uh, a while back, I haven't heard much about it anymore lately, but about the Egyptian pyramids maybe being like hospitals where they, they retune your body. I think they, they measured the frequency inside the sarcophagus in the King's chamber. And it was attuned to like, basically your, your same frequency when you're born as if like, almost like they're tuning your body to these things to like, get rid of all the diseases and everything or viruses or, you know, like computer software, you, set it back to default and it gets rid of everything. It almost seems like they're doing that type of thing. And it seems like this technology is coming out again, but they're not really talking about it as like being hospitals or something. And then each, you know, pyramid, the different shape and different uh, use of whatever uh, magnetite or mercury or whatever has different properties for healing these different mm -hmm. uh, uh problems what do you what do you think about that uh as the pyramid i don't think it's so much i think that the and i've been in the great pyramid like five times when you get in there and that's by the way you guys when if you decide to come with us we have two hours of just us our group in the great pyramid no general public 
no guards, nothing. It's, you can go into the subterranean chamber down below the pyramid, king's chamber or queen's chamber. So, hey Cliff, on, on the DL, how do we get some weed in there, though? <laughs> weed? Cannabis. <laughs> cannabis. 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 You mean added to the trip? <laughs> yeah, no, I was just saying Where because you talk. You can about, have a little. Uh, you can have a little bit. Look, dude, I wrote a book on cannabis. I, I know you did. It. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. So the thing is, <laughs> when when your frequency, you're, you're you're resonating at a certain frequency. When you drink, when you take psilocybin or you take a, a, a psychotropic plant medicine, it changes your frequency, right? So as much as I love cannabis. When you go to these temples, you want to be clean. Oh. Because yeah. you're going in there, and a lot of these temples, like, like when we go to the um, Hathor Temple in Dendera, that thing's still turned on. And if you come in there and you're a little buzzed, not only are you going to be half tuned, you know, it's not going to be the, the, the full spectrum. I have people that come home after a tour with us. And not a, not a, they don't have spontaneous healing, but they've had a life experience, a shift. So, hey, man, if you can, just bite the bullet for 10 days and, and just. Oh, he can. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Yeah, no, I was just making a joke. Yeah. <laughs> no, dude, I, I'm, totally, I'm totally with you. I'm like, I, I've been in, a, in my hotel after uh, being in like uh, Luxor, which has the biggest man-made sculptures in the world uh luxor and i'm like when we know it's a healing temple so i'm like man can i just have <laughs> listen to your guides listen to me mm -hmm. you can do whatever you want i have guys that go on a tour that are like you know no, they're just i don't want to go to jail and age um anyhow so <laughs> you have to, you can edit this out so that's, yeah. that's, no, no that's really cool that you say that though because a lot of uh i've even heard i think was it graham hancock that talked about doing like dmt in in the king's chamber and seeing like the gods coming out from the walls and stuff i don't think he's done any drugs when he's in the great chamber no, I, I'm, I'm, one of one of those more famous uh guys i think freddie silva was high when he was in the great <laughs> pyramid uh, yeah talking talking to freddie is he i was like asking him because he's you know he's european right so they, they just live English. different lifestyles over there and i was like so how do you come down from these uh these high high vibing experiences he's like meat and alcohol <laughs> like, those are the two things that will ground you out automatically he's like if you're up here floating in the air just get yourself a glass of whiskey and a steak and call it a day and you'll be back you'll be back on earth and, and in Egypt, the, the shish kebabs are world class. So that there's your meat. Either you can have lamb, beef, or chicken. So wow. we eat a lot of that. The and the food. The entering the temple clean, though, you know. Yes. Of, yes. Yeah. And maybe, so maybe the reason why we have this idea of entering the temple clean is because that was how you would enter them before because you needed mm -hmm. to have your energy be changed and if you already had different energy yeah. going on from some side effect of a drug then it wouldn't produce the same results exactly and i actually wrote a um, paper for uh new tourists who are going to egypt for the first time and entering these he healing temples when you before you go in 
you use a conscious key. And when I say conscious key, you intend to have a healing. You intend to have an experience. And when you close your eyes for a few minutes before you enter the temple and go, I intend, first of all, uh, I uh, thank you for allowing me in and uh, to explore this temple of worship. And my intention is to get a healing, get insight, whatever your intention is. And when you do that, most of the people that I, I've been on tour with have an experience, maybe not necessarily there, but a few hours later, definitely in their sleep. <laughs> and after that, because you're opening, you've, you've uh, accessed the key, because these temples are built for human physiology. Yeah. They really are. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I bring a, a compass with me every time, and a lot of the, a lot of the places on the temple, the, the compass is all over the place. So there's energy coming up. So when you smoke cannabis, which is a wonderful, wonderful drug, it's a wonderful plant medicine. I would say have a little bit less is more. So if you're into concentrates yeah. or dabs, forget it because no. you're just blanking I, I, your brain. I think that's a common thing too, you know, and I'd love to go. I don't know how, how deep your history is on, on cannabis and, you know, it's, it's origins, uh, you know, and that is really fascinating because I think the earth provides you what you need in the locations that you're at. You know, for instance, maca root, um, you know, pumps extra oxygen into your blood and that grows in an area that's so high altitude that you have less oxygen in your blood. And so if you eat the maca root at that high elevation, it's going to allow you to stay at that high elevation for longer. Um, you know, and, and looking at how our indigenous uh, ancestors and, and uh, relatives, our ancient relatives were using these plants. They, they seem to like have rituals with them that were very time date specific and very intentional specific. And I, I think once we start to, you know, uh, embellish those stories a little bit more, we can um, understand when and where, why and how to use them. And then then that even makes it more special because you can plan your life around these events. You know, we should go back to planning our lives around, you know, the cosmological and celestial events. Because when I just even the very basic Gregorian calendar, new modern uh, moon calendar, when I got a lunar calendar, I just started uh, booking, you know, podcast around those dates of like when the full moon is the quarter moons and everything. And you know what? Those are the best fucking shows sometimes. <laughs> and it's yeah, like, wow, we need to go back to <laughs> establishing a celestial calendar and everybody's celestial knowledge. Yeah, no, I like that. Uh, in the half or temple, which was an observatory, but also it's just a mind blowing temple it's just made out of monstrous granite stones the ceiling at this uh, observatory uh, deck it's the observatory deck you go into a little room and the ceiling which was taken out and shipped during napoleon's time and it's in the louvre i've seen it but they still have a a, a reproduction of it it's the entire astrological system and chart so all the all the uh, characters are there and uh, it's all designed apparently around individual uh, uh, lifetimes and apparently the master astrologer 
astronomer and they were they were combined. It was a sacred art. Wow. But it would be able to tell a person's lifetime and you know do uh, predictions and things like that, which we don't use today. Uh, but that temple was totally locked into the astrological uh, system. So it's pretty cool. Where is that at again? Hathor oh. Temple. Oh, you can see the you can see the uh, the, the real uh, Napoleon took a, a complete temple and a good deal of Hathor with them to uh, back to Paris. And the the Louvre Museum has the ceiling. They took the whole ceiling and they just cut it out. <laughs> they put it on a boat. Wow, that's crazy. They also took a, they also took two major obelisks. And they both broke, but they still put them up. One's in downtown Paris, and the other one's south of uh, south of Paris. Oh, well, I want to ask you what you know about the um, the sound pillars in Mesoamerica. There apparently there's these like communicating pillars that are you could like like either yell from them and communicate from far distances. Um, you know, I heard about it a long time ago, but I haven't been able to type in the right search words to find it online and I haven't been able to talk to anybody that knows about it but I figured that you might because you have such a well uh it isn't it isn't it isn't so much the I don't know about pillars but it is the actual design of the civic area so the most well-known acoustic uh resonance or resonator is at the um central area of Chichen Itza, where the um, main pyramid is next to the ball, ball court, and then there's four or five smaller pyramidal structures around there. They figured out a way that allowed a person to stand at the top of the pyramid to speak normally like we're speaking right now, and for the voice to be projected many hundreds of yards to the whole interior of this uh, civic area. And it's the same at uh, many of the other sites. Like it's the same at Ushmal, which has a, a very, very, it's my favorite uh, Mayan ruin, a beautiful uh, pyramid, uh, pyramid of the magician. You can be at the top of the stairs, speak normally, and everyone below can hear what you're saying. It's like, how did they figure that out? You know, ultimate so, heads. Pardon me? ultimate tour guide uh, technology, you know, cause the tour guides will have yeah. like a little microphone and like a hip, a hip thing, a hip speaker. <laughs> yeah. It's like, all right, guys, we're going to go on this tour, but you, you know, uh, you can hear me from anywhere in the temple. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm curious cause I haven't heard about uh, happening at some of the other big sites like um, to call. I'm sure it happens there because there's a lot of engineering going on there. Um, I don't know. We do a lot of different sites when we do our Mexico tour. And I'm thinking that uh, Esna and Campeche was probably, it's a beautiful city. I think that that is probably going on in their civic center as well. Mm. It's just that it's so well designed and designed with harmonics and earth energies and stuff that we just don't understand that's in our atmosphere. There's, there's uh, energetics that are at play that interact with us physically that bounce off the buildings that, you know, there's so much we don't know. There's so many, so much lost technology that 
is only found as new new devices are made. And I keep saying this on my show that there's going to be an MIT graduate that invents a scanning device that can scan these pyramids, can scan these obelisks, and all of a sudden there will be readings of mathematical formulas mm-hmm. uh, and other data that are imbued. So when we hear the mythology of speaking to a to an obelisk or the oracles of the building or whatever, there's some truth to that. You know, there, there's a hidden technology that I believe is imbued in the in the carved granite of these temples you know, in these obelisks. You know? There is, there is even, um, because, so it's like, okay, so if the motherland was the Maya, the Maya motherland, right? Maya, Mary, mama, you know, mother, all that goodness, Atlantis, maybe, hopefully, you know, <laughs> and then you have Egypt, which is, um, you know, using the same type of sacred geometry from that. Well, the culture after that seemingly was like, maybe the Greeks, um, but down the line, you have the sacred geometry, geometrical buildings of the ancient cathedrals and our ancient ancient architecture. That's within the last, you know, within the last thousand years, and those have right. written documents and written mathematical sacred geometrical patterns that are said to help hold memory and help hold information. And we had Peter Shampoo on. Peter Shampoo has written some cool books. He wrote the Gaia Matrix um, book back in 99. And he said that the molecular structure of the water itself is the shape of the pyramid. And, you know, you have other modern researchers, um, Dr. Emoto, I believe, that did the big water experiment with energy and information itself being held in water. And so, uh, you know, you think about uh, these beautiful, lavish architectural feats that we're able to go see in like Prague and in Europe and these cathedrals. And they're said to hold memory like the building itself can hold memory. And when you come through the door, you're able to tap back into the memory in these libraries of information. Yeah. And I'm, and I, so there's totally something to that. There's also something to the square box doors that we're living in now in modern architecture and why people are so forgetful all the time. Why we can't remember anything all the time. What? What? Huh? Yeah. What? <laughs> I have no idea what I just said. You talking to me? You yeah, talking to me? <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, one of the things that you're talking about, there's something about sacred geometry and, and some of the most, most well-known cathedrals in Europe are built on earlier temples and structures that we don't really know about. But the Templar Knights who built a lot of these places had information that they had acquired when they were in Israel. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of books that are written about this sacred, uh, sacred geometry and the uh, science behind them incorporated into these into these uh, cathedrals that are uh, very sacred in many ways. I mean, uh, there's a certain feeling when you go to these places that is uh, constant. And it's like, well, what is that feeling? Is it energy? It's, it's, I mean, we don't know. We don't know. And prior to the industrial age and, and the information age that we're in right now, 
people were much more sensitive to energy. We're not sensitive to energy anymore because we're being lambasted with, uh, uh, you know, frequencies from internet, from uh, other, other sources that are not healthy. And so the only way to get away from it is to move out of the big city and live up, <laughs> live in the, in the uh, uh, boondocks of forests or, or deserts or whatever. And, it's much more healthier lifestyle. I think our lifestyle is very, very damaging right now. So, yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, so as we're winding down here, uh, we're going to ask you like one final question each. Roman, you got one? I do have one. Yes, of course I have one. When it comes to going on your tours, Cliff, uh, what, what is the involvement process? You know, is it as easy as just clicking a button, buying a package and then buying your airplane tickets or what are the different types of loopholes that people can look forward to, uh, look for to make the process as easy as possible? So the big, the big one, yeah, the big one, here's the biggest issue right now. And I have, uh, my son is, uh, and, and people, a lot of people are just not into the vaccines. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're an anti-vaxxer, you can't go anywhere. Forget it, unfortunately. Uh, at some point, I'm crossing my fingers that they will lift the ban for mandatory vaccines and just test people uh, so they don't have the virus before they get on a plane. The big one is when you get on a plane to go to Egypt or Mexico, uh, excuse me, just Egypt and, and Turkey and the other places uh, in the Middle East, you got to have a negative test. You got to be negative for COVID. Okay. Uh, you also have to have your vaccine. You have to have your, your, uh, your two vaccines, one and two. That's the biggest obstacle that most people have. Other than that, uh, all you need to do for an earth ancients tour is to be available on the dates that are there. Uh, we have made it now uh, completely uh, full spectrum, which means that you are, as soon as you land in Egypt, everything's taken care of. Your food, your flight, your uh, all your accommodations, including the uh, multiple nights on the Nile. It's, it's five-star across the board. All you got to do is get over there mm-hmm. and you're taken care of. Nice. So... I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I haven't, um, you know, done and done a done a tour outside of the country, but I've been looking into it for years. And before the pandemic happened, I, I was going to do my world travels. Like to that end of 2019, I was getting ready to go to Australia and then start, you know, going to do some some work there and then travel. And then 2019 was such a great year that I was so excited for 2020. Everybody was saying perfect vision. And I was like, sweet, love it, you know, and then couldn't go anywhere. And so I'm ready for travels now. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever I can do to get out of the country to experience more of the sacred sites. Yeah, uh, we we have a really good price. Our price, and I can say this uh, without hesitation, we have the best tour price of all. We're half, we're 40% of what the normal fee is to go to Egypt. Plus, until November, we're offering an extra discount. It's the early bird special. You can see it on our Facebook page. But also, if you want to see more, go to earthancients.com forward slash tours. Egypt is the primary banner. Click on it, and you'll see our, our, our entire itinerary 
from start to finish, which is constantly evolving. I look, so, I mean, I look at it and dream about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we made it really easy though, because that other discount drops it down. I think it's well, it's not quite fifty percent off, but the typical tour to Mexico uh, to Egypt is about nine grand. That's a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. Ours is starts at forty two hundred plus. If if you listen or if you go to the uh, uh, Facebook page, uh, there's an additional few hundred bucks off using a code. So none of my competitors, nobody else has that deal. It's really, really, really cheap. Excellent. Uh, so my final question, Cliff, is we know you're not too with the ancient astronaut theory. You, you think that humans were more sophisticated and go back a little bit further in history. How do you explain these uh, kind of civilization creators, these creator type gods that were in many cultures said to be tall, uh, Caucasian features, blue eyes, beards, perhaps. Where do you think these people came from? Uh, for the most part, the thinking is that they were survivors of these advanced races. You know, we don't really know uh, if, I mean, there's rumors that the Atlantinians were very tall, fair. We know that there were races on Mu, Lemuria of, uh, of uh, cultures, multiple cultures that had that look to them. They were fair skinned, redhead. Uh, there are stories of uh, uh, creator gods uh, in Tiwanaku, was used in Bolivia. There's even sculptures of what they look like. Um, and rather than considering off-world types, I think most of these uh, restart figures, the guys who are there to kind of teach people. I mean, you see it at Gobekli Tepe. Mm -hmm. Gobekli Tepe is an educational center. They're teaching people how to uh, uh, develop agriculture. It's a reboot center. It really yeah. is. And they've only excavated a couple of the, of the centers there. There's like uh, 50 others that haven't even been excavated. But it looks like there were survivors of this cataclysm. Um, we don't know enough about India. How was India affected by the cataclysm? How were the Chinese affected? We don't know. Um, but that might answer we, a lot of questions though, you know, if we yeah. dig into their daily stories. Yeah. So when, when there's a thought of, you know, off world types coming in, I'm not adverse to helping, you know, guys coming down and helping, but it, it's a, it's a challenging narrative. You know, it really is. The problem is with all these ancient uh, possibilities is there's no documentation yeah. There's no uh, oral. I mean, there are some oral histories uh, with different northern northern uh, North American uh, tribal groups, uh, but it's hard. It's hard to know. It's really hard to know. I I don't discount it. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, it's 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 story. It's really story. I'm more about praising and. Um, promoting advanced humans, yes. Earth humans, yes. 
Us. Yeah. And, you know, you guys, when you come down with me or whoever you go with, when you go to Egypt and you see these, what I call flat out megalithic temples, you'll be blown away. It's like, this is gorgeous. And how do they do it? <laughs> you know, there's really no way to know. Well, maybe, maybe we don't have physical libraries of these things left anymore or uh, ancient uh, text of, of what happened back then. But like Roman was saying before, maybe we have Akashic libraries. And if we can tap into the consciousness of these uh, different uh, structures that are around the world, maybe we can start to see a different picture of what's happening. Problem with that is, is a lot of people won't believe you. They'll think you're hallucinating or something. But from your perspective, you've done uh, some meditations yourself at temples and have had significant experiences, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the first time I went to, um, I'm trying to think of the Egyptian temple. It was the, uh, the Karnak temple and the reason that karnak is so amazing is that that's where the engineer chris dunn uh analyzed these huge sculptures and said this is not by uh ramses ii which is what uh karnak is attributed to they're much 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 more sophisticated and i i sat down in a, a, an area they call the sanctuary and i got a pretty big rush and I'm pretty sensitive to energy. And so I was like, wow. And the rest of the, the, the evening, because we went uh, at dusk, I was like just charged. <laughs> it was amazing. So uh, I really encourage people to learn how to meditate because basic meditation draws information down. And one of the, the great accesses to the uh, Akashic Records is to begin asking, begin uh, 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 intuition or uh, intending, excuse me, intending to receive data. And you get it in bits and pieces, you know, and this is where what they call the muse comes in. If you're a creative person, you're a writer, you're a painter, you're uh, a musician. When you access these higher realms, there's, there's someone who kind of overlooks you and says, okay, this is what you want to do this lifetime. Let me help you. And you, you get little subtle downloads or inspiration. And it can be in anything. You don't have to be an artist. You can be an engineer. You can be somebody who is um, looking for a creative edge or solutions to a problem. Accessing these, uh, these etheric realms in a meditative state is what meditation is all about. This is why it's timeless, yeah. You know, and the other thing that people may or may not know is when you meditate, you actually link the left and right hemisphere of your brain. Mm. And when you sync this unified brain, it actually uh, uh, stimulates hormonal release, stimulates healing. And I think that one of the reasons that the ancients were big on uh, using meditation was it also keeps you young keeps your mind vital that download and just the way uh the body works in fact they should really teach kids how to meditate uh because it's such a benefit when i started meditating i i learned how to do transcendental meditation when i was 18 and i just did it because i was an old soul and i needed to figure out i was a miserable i had a miserable childhood <laughs> 
<laughs> but when I started meditating, things started cleaning up and I, you know, I, I just felt better and life was more palatable, you know, not that I was going to end my life, but I was just miserable as a kid. So anyhow, that's my two cents on that. <laughs> beautiful, Excellent. beautiful. Well, thank you, Cliff, for joining us today. We appreciate it. Hey, it's been a pleasure talking with you guys and uh, uh, look forward to, to talking with you again. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And tell the people uh, where they can find you at Earth Ancients Podcast and what else you got going on. Yeah, Earth Ancients. Uh, you can look at Earth Ancients. It's, uh, you know, wherever you get your, your uh, podcast feed, uh, you can uh, pick up Earth Ancients. Go to our website, earthancients.com. We have, I think I started in 2014. We have, I think, something like five or 600 podcasts. Um, and, you know, check out the tours. If you've never been to one of these exotic or ancient places, we go to uh, Mexico and uh, Europe every year. And then this fall, excuse me, next fall, we're going to go to Turkey for the first time. We're going to go to the Hypogeum in Malta. Oh. We're also going to go to uh, a couple of other places in um, Turkey. Uh, and we're spending... 12 days in the Middle East, the first time ever. Wow. So, wow. Hypogeum. Have a, that's a dream. There. Yeah. <laughs> they go to Turkey. All right. Well, thank you, Cliff. Uh, stick around for a minute after uh, we end show. We want to ask you a couple things. Uh, but Fire Tribe, if you're not down with that, wake, wake up. up.